Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kao and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. With me, as always, is Cynthia Kao. Cynthia, hello. Hi. Happy New Year. I can't Happy believe it's 2022. I'm going to be writing 2021 at least for six months. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was, we were, we uh, had a great year, and I know that's not the same for a lot of folks, but so we spent New Year's really reflecting about how great of a year we had. And then like for the theme for us as a family for 2022 is like, how do we give back? Cause we've been really, like I said, very fortunate. So this year it was awesome. My family and I sat down on, on new year's and, and thought about like what, what we can do to give back to those that weren't as fortunate for 2021. And so we're already figuring that out. So it's uh, it was, it was nice. It was a nice little break. That's great. Yeah. Always counting your blessings. You know, 2021 was a repeat of 2020 for us. And I lost a few friends to COVID, you know, some Marines that I've known for many, many years. So that was kind of um, disheartening. But, you know, you have to count your count your blessings every day and just live life to its fullest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're excited everybody's here. Uh, if you're new to the show, welcome. Every episode, we get to bring in these amazing people that are entrepreneurs that have one little extra thing in their resume, and that's service to our country. In this episode, I'm excited because we have a, a fellow Navy vet, and that's Sean Bonner from uh, Guild Financial. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, great. It's great to be here. It's great to be here in 2022. Right. <laughs> exactly. We made it. Finally, there should, for us that get through, we should get Howell have shirts. We made it. We got through 2021, right? <laughs> that yeah, or, or mugs what, or something. <laughs> You're here and now it's time to get back to work. That's right. That's true. Rise and grind. So Sean, uh, you know, we were just talking before we started recording, you know, you're, you're obviously you've been in the Navy, but your path to getting there was sort of not the typical, I get out of high school, go right in the military. Tell us a little bit about your path going in the Navy and, and what prompted you to go in at such a, a, a little late, st- little later stage. That's late stage is kind of you to say, you know, yeah. I was thinking about this, you know, the, the military in general, right? It's probably the only, only profession in the world where at 28 years old, you can be considered the old man or the old girl. Right. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, um, I grew up outside of Philadelphia um, and, you know, was a half decent high school athlete, football player, had some friends that were um, one good friend, actually that went in the Marine Corps was kind of thinking about that, but sort of college was a track I was on. Um, I played, college football for a short amount of time and then after school I was sort of thinking about it but you know it was the the early mid 90s and um, you know not a lot was going on and I had a, an opportunity to go work on the floor of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange which is the country's oldest stock exchange it's now owned by the Nasdaq but down on the floor with those guys in the funny color jackets yelling and screaming I um <laughs> of course the job market was pretty bad bad back then in 1994 so I had to take my first job for free as a clerk I went to, to work for free in the, on the floor of the exchange and then uh after four or five months, a small group that I was working for turned to me and said, all right, you know, we're going to start paying you and we want to put you in the training program. So nice. Yeah. Um, and again, it was right. It was the days of the actual, like the physical trading floor. So you see those pictures of those old videos of the guys in the trading pits yelling and screaming. So, you know, it's the kind of a, 
a young person, athletic person, competitive person. It was a pretty attractive place to be. I was pretty fortunate. You know, the, obviously the stock market started doing well in the 90s and stock options, equity options started taking off. And that was my specialty. I was an equity options trader or what we refer to as a market maker. And uh, started that, I was the youngest member of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange when I uh, got on my seat when I was 22. I think I was the youngest member for two or two or two and a half years. Um, ended up starting my first business in 1997 on actually the American Stock Exchange in New York. Moved up there and uh, became an, an options trader on the American Stock Exchange and quickly started trading these new products called ETFs and ETF options. So it was a good time to be in the business, but it wasn't hard to see sort of the writing on the wall, right? That um, the electronic exchanges are already taking over. And in those days, all the regional options exchanges, they had a, a monopoly on the products they would trade. So like IBM would only trade in uh, Chicago and Intel options would only trade on the, the Amex in New York and Dell computer only traded in Philadelphia. But that was all about to come to an end and sort of everybody knew it. So good place to be, good time, good time to be there. Lots of um, great opportunity, but you sort of knew that the, the end was, was coming soon. And um, really around 2000, 2001 is when it happened. Did you have, uh, did you in your family have this sort of financial market background? Like what interest, when you got into the school, why the interest in finances? Yeah, no, that's actually a great question, right? I really didn't have really much of a financial you know, background. My family is actually all doctors or academics. Nice. Um, my dad was the second oldest of nine, six boys, five doctors in that family. My grandfather was a doctor, three of his brothers were doctors. And actually my grandfather was a combat surgeon with the 40th Field Hospital in Europe, mm-hmm. um, served with 9th Air Force uh, in support of the 101st Airborne. So wow. D-Day, you know, D-Day plus three, Battle of the Bulge. So, um, you know, those kind of stories lingered with me as a kid, but actually he died when I was pretty young in the 70s. So um, really no kind of military connection there, but a big, you know, kind of strong academic um and, and medical connection. And, you know, my family always had sort of reverence for my grandfather's service. And so talked about it a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was all set to kind of go on the path to go to medical school and started, you know, down that path was pre-med, sort of took all the science classes, biochem and organic chem and those kind of things. And then at the last minute, I was like, you know, it's really not something I want to do and started getting more and more interested in the stock market and trading and trading kind of more complex products like options. So that was really the, the path that led me to it. It was just, um, kind of follow your gut instinct. Now, of course, my first couple of months on the exchange, when I'm down there working for free, I was thinking, you know, I should probably be studying for this MCATs instead of doing this. But um, one thing led to another and, uh, and it ended up being a career for me. I can tell you, though, those free internships, you know, sometimes that's where your best learning takes place. And um, you can't even put a number on that because if you go to school, I mean, you can go to school and get a formal education, but something like working in the floor, in the pit of the stock exchange, that's experience that I'm sure, you know, that'll never leave you. Yeah, I mean, it was you definitely had to be quick on your toes, right? And quick with kind of making decisions and being able to sort of do, you know, calculations in your mind. So it wasn't just like the, you know, the mental processing power. It was mental processing power while somebody's yelling and screaming at you, right? Almost sounds a little bit like boot camp or OCS, but yeah. the, the same kind of environment because everybody there is, you know, to competing essentially against one another, right? As people were often fond of saying down on the pit, like this is not a team sport. So, hmm. um, you know, if, we, if you look at sort of those um, Marine Corps boot camp videos of uh, the shark attacks on, on recruits, right? <laughs> by the DIs, like a trading pit almost looks like the same kind of thing. Wow. Right? And uh, when, especially when someone's got a good order and guys are trying to get a piece of it. So uh, it was, you know, it was a pretty cool environment, but, um, you know, it certainly seemed to me a lot more appealing than, um, you know, another four years of school at medical school. So. So when you got to boot camp, it wasn't necessarily a shock for you. Um, 
Yeah, no. And again, like when I, in the, we can talk about this in a moment, but the sort of the boot camp I went to was even sort of more pared down, a, a pared down version of OCS. Um, no, it wasn't a shock to me, but then again, it was, right? It was the first time really ever putting on the uniform and kind of, um, you know, being in that military environment, even though you're older and even though I had a lot of sort of street experience and business experience, it was still, it was still a lot to take in for me. Mm. So when you got in the military then, what, what did you think you were going to do? What did you want to do when you got in? Yeah. So, um, kind of leading up to, you know, the, the big event, seminal event for me was nine 11, right? Mm-hmm. I was, uh, I, my, I was had married, my wife, um, had just given birth to our daughter in June. So I had been working in New York on the American stock exchange, which is about a block South of the world trade center. Mm-hmm. And then, um, had been back down here in Philly, working on the Philadelphia stock exchange for the summer, but I had guys working for me up in New York. And that morning of nine 11, I was actually on the Philly exchange trading the semiconductor index and talking to one of my guys in New York and kind of like, you know, what's going on. And he was on the phone with me. It's not a small plane. Like it's an American airlines plane. There's American airlines crap flying down the street front here. I'm like, what do you mean crap? He's like, you know, the, you know, the yellow life vest going to the seat, like mm-hmm. 10 of those just blew by me here. So, mm-hmm. and then it was another yeah. couple of minutes of conversation and boom, the second plane hit and I got to go. So you know, that was obviously a big day for me, right? Um, it really was tough on the physical exchanges because one, it kind of put the market into a slide. Two, it really impacted the American stock exchange um, and really made me think, kind of think about what's next in life. So I ended up doing two things out of that. One is I started looking around and took a job um, at one of the big, big, what we call in the business bulge racket banks, a big global bank on Wall Street. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a spot there trading equity derivatives. And then I applied for and eventually received a direct commission in the Navy Reserve as an intelligence officer. Mm-hmm. So the Navy has direct commissioning program for intelligence. Uh, it's actually left over from the Second World War. It's the only branch of service that has direct commissioning for intel. So mostly it's for JAGs or chaplain or medical, um, but na- the Navy still has it for intel. So it's a very competitive um, very competitive process. You have to go put a package together and go through a local board and then go to a national board. Um, and then actually it took me two tries again. I got turned down on my first try. Oh, wow. And so that just made me angrier and I had to, had to reapply <laughs> for it, but eventually got commissioned in August of 2003. Wow. Nice. And then, uh, and then they send you to direct commissioning officer school, which used to be referred to as knife and fork school. So it was kind of like, you know, where they'd send the doctors or Jags and they'd go down to Pensacola and stay in the BOQ and bring their golf clubs. But and we had just invaded Iraq, so they were kind of switching things up. They made it an all-male class. They actually put us in the OCS barracks, um, right? You know, right next to the regular OCS kids, um, with you know, DIs and gunnies throwing trash cans down the hall at four thirty in the morning, <laughs> that kind of thing. So for me, I thought it was super cool. But like the the direct commissioning program really is for, for mostly for prior enlisted guys. So you know, I had guys who were like a Navy chief, right? <laughs> and he's listening to some DI on scream and just rolling his eyes. But I thought it was the coolest thing I'd seen in a long time. That's funny. What if anything surprised you by that process of going through OCS school? Was there any moment that you thought, well, this is not what I thought this was going to be? Yeah. Um, some of it was, some of it wasn't right. Yeah. Um, you know, you sort of have your pictures in your mind about it. Like, you know, you kind of get there and, you're, and you realize like once you get inside some of the buildings, like, God, these, these buildings look like they're about to fall down and the paint's kind of dingy <laughs> and the floors are kind of dingy. Right. Like, um, you sort of realize it's right. They're all government buildings. Um, and that the people that you're with, I think is really what make the experience, right. It was a huge sort of, especially post nine 11, like that, a huge swath of people coming in from all different walks of life mm-hmm. on the intelligence world, a lot of law enforcement guys. Um, so it was pretty interesting there, but, um, you know, in terms of like, what, you know, 
what you didn't expect. I don't know. I, like I, you know, you still think when like when guys are forming up, you know, to PT at five in the morning and you hear them all out front and everyone's running cadence, you know, you got an OCS class of 200 kids and us coming in behind and everyone's out there calling cadence and running at five in the morning. I mean, it still makes me feel pretty good to think about that. So, um, you know, those sort of little things, I think probably a lot of people have those memories from boot camp or from OCS or whatever their commissioning program was, but, uh, you know, it was a lot to take in. Um, and, and for us that direct commissioning school was a lot. I mean, there was some PT involved, but really it was like 18, 19 hour days of just academic stuff. They just, just crammed down your throat. Yeah. When you, when you finished your school, where did you head? Were you deployed? Did you have to go to what duty station did you get once yes. you were done? So I, ne- I, I never went to war. Um, I was placed with an, with, uh, an ONI unit out of, um, Will Grove NAS and then Fort Dix. Okay. So, um, you know, Intel is its own community and they manage that community. Sometimes, you know, Intel guys will go out and get assigned to other units, but typically you're in an all Intel unit. So my first unit was an ONI unit. And that's kind of where I, you know, finished, started up and finished my Intel training. So, um, had to get your Intel qualification, it's ended up going to, um, a couple of different schools, a human school run by ONI down, um, down out of Suitland, Maryland, as well as Nimitzi Navy Marine Corps intelligence training command in those days was in Virginia, which was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool place to be, um, Intel school, you know, you're in a, and it was an all Navy class, but you're taught by, um, Navy Marine Corps intelligence professionals. And on that base, there was also, um, a very select naval special warfare unit there. So it's kind of the only the only two things there were Intel guys and naval special warfare. It wasn't hard to tell who was with who. <laughs> um, the guys with you know big arms and big pickup trucks, right? It was pretty easy to figure out. But I mean, that was you know one of the certainly the cooler experiences. And then um, and then I was at ONI, and actually we ran a human uh, collection operation uh, at ONI for for a few years. I was a part of, so that was pretty cool. So even though I never went to war, I did get to do some operational experience. Um, and, um, it was, you know, it was, it was, that was everything I sort of hoped it would be. Right. I mean, that's the, the tough thing about the reserve and being a, reser- a reservist is you're always sort of serving two masters, mm-hmm. um, right. Big Navy, big army, whatever they're concerned with, um, right. Man training equip. They, they want you to be able to plug in to go forward. Right. That, and that's what the main mission of the reserves is have somebody ready to go and deploy and mobilize and go to war. But you've got all these gaining commands, right? The command you actually work for is cutting your paycheck. They want to get work done out of you. So you've always got these like, you know, training, training requirements and operational requirements. And a lot of times there's just not enough hours in the day to do both. So, which is why they say, you know, the reserves is one week in a month, you know, two weeks a year, but it ends up being probably 10 times the amount. Yeah, for oh. sure. I wanted to ask you because I got in late and as somebody who, was in your you know early 30s when you got in was there a big was there a big change for your family was it difficult for them to adjust yeah i mean um let's just say my wife was um eventually eventually tolerant of the idea <laughs> i mean right you can imagine like i come home one day after 911 and you know everyone's kind of world is shaking upside down i said yeah um, you know, I'm going to go actually take a job at a bank. We're going to move to New York. Oh, and I'm, by the way, I'm going to go into the Navy reserve and, you know, put my name in the hat to go to war. So mm-hmm. yeah, that took a little bit to getting used to. Um, I was surprised. I was surprised about how, you know, there was really sort of a bifurcation of people saying like, great job, you know, unbelievable. I wish I could do something like that. Um, and people saying like, are you out of your goddamn mind? What the hell are you thinking? <laughs> Yeah. I had the second. I had most yeah. of the second. <laughs> right. Yeah. So did I, for sure. So when you when you went through and you're finishing up, 
what was that discussion, not only for yourself, but your family of, hey, this is it. I'm finally transitioning out. Talk a little bit about that that discussion. Out of the military? Yeah. Coming out of the yeah, military. So, yeah. So I ended up doing kind of 13 years total. Oh, wow. Um, in 2007, like getting ready for the surge, I was actually, um, you know, kind of in the pipeline to go forward. And in those days, you know, a lot of times, like when the reserve world, they come down and say, Hey, like, you know, you're getting to the top of the mobilization list and mm. right. And I say the reserves, right. The reserves are like dog years, except that's the opposite. One year of active duty is like seven years in the reserves, <laughs> um, <laughs> like taking your, getting your, your security clearance. I mean, obviously being an Intel guy, everyone's got to have a TSSCI, right. That takes, you know, four or five times as long. Uh, your training can take longer. So really it's, you know, first couple of years is training, training, training. Then you kind of get operational. And then it's like you get in the pipeline to go and they say, look, you're going to get mobbed, you know, pick something now before, before, you know, the Navy picks for you. And so I was fortunate. There was a, there was an opportunity with Naval Special Warfare. I was starting to look at, they were just standing up, sending reserve uh, Intel officers with uh, SEAL teams. And so I was you know, actually talking to a master chief outside of DC about what schools we go to. And he's naming all these schools I've never even heard of. And I'm like, yeah, I guess it sounds good to me. Um, and then, you know, I had sort of a, a legacy legacy issue, legacy injury that started acting up getting pretty bad. I had a herniated disc in my cervical spine. So it's C5, C6, mm. um, which yeah, it was getting pretty bad. And it was, you know, a co- really it was a combination of too much time sitting in front of the computer and too much time, you know, lifting weights the wrong way or, or doing whatever. Um, I actually had a bike accident that kind of threw things up, but my last in kind of 2007, my last weekend with reserves, I was in so much pain. I actually cracked a tooth. Um, oh, and I actually looked at me and said, all right, it's time for you to go home. Um, <laughs> so I went home, I went to the dentist and then I went to the neurosurgeon and uh, he said, you know, come back, you know, when because your neck needs to be operated on, but you know, come back when, when you're ready. And I said, well, how do I know I'm ready? He said, you'll know. And sure enough, later, th- three weeks later, I was pulling into the Trenton train station because I was commuting up to New York and I could not get out of my car. Um, I had to sit yeah, those t- injuries, like if you ignore it, it, yeah. it will just hit you out of nowhere where you can't move. Yeah, you kind of have that mindset, like just drive on, drive on, drive on, but ri- literally cannot move. I mean, the worst, I mean, it feels like someone's driving a railroad spike mm-hmm. through the back of your spine and then you can't move. So that put me uh, out. I ended up getting cervical spine surgery, um, had an artificial disc put at C5, C6. So I've got uh, some titanium and cobalt in there. As uh, as uh, my old Italian boss at one of the banks I worked for said, you know, you look like Darth Vader now in your x-ray. <laughs> uh, and actually I had to have a second surgery about two years ago. Oh, man. So that put me out. I was, you know, temporarily not physically qualified for a bit, kind of. So missed the surge, um, you know, went did the whole rehab process and then was like, you know, one year, two years, now three years later, like, okay, it's, you know, your time to, to, to hang this up or go back. And I made the decision to go back. I actually attended a, uh, I actually attended a dinner on the Intrepid, a fundraising dinner and was sitting um, on one side with some guys from Wall Street, literally to the left of me and the, on the right of me were some, some senior enlisted guys from the Navy. And I was like, God, I, I, you know, I miss, I miss the Navy and I miss hanging out with these guys. So that kind of prompted me to get moving back in, went back in and was um, assigned to a defense intelligence agency unit out of Fort Dix. Mm-hmm. Um, and did that until I got out in 2016. Oh, wow. So, you know, for me, the kind of the transition was right. I had a couple of years where I was sort of in frozen mode. So now I'm like a, you know, 38 year old, 39 year old, Oh three, right. Who's already got seven or eight years in. So it was kind of an interesting position to be in. Um, you know, got got along really well with the senior enlisted. I was probably the only the only O three ever allowed in the Chiefs mess. <laughs> <Dang> <laughs> um, 
you know, and sort of did everything at that last DI unit from being admin officer to being acting XO to, you know, helping out with ops. Um, and because it was a much smaller unit and then actually got sent to some pretty cool, cool schools from there, um, up to the war college, Naval war college for some leadership stuff. Um, but then it was, you know, it was like, look, you know, I kind of seemed like, you know, we had missed everything. Um, my injury might keep me away from doing what I want to do with special warfare. So it was a time like, you know, think about getting out. So I ended up getting out in 2016. Um, coincidentally, I was serving with, um, a friend of mine I grew up with who actually followed the same commissioning program as I did. Um, so it was pretty cool. He's actually the co-founder on the project we're working on now. Nice. But uh, the last actual act I had in the Navy was uh, promoting him to Lieutenant commander. So I wow. swore him in, I swore him in and then he outranked me. So it was time for me to get out. So. <laughs> That's awesome. So you're out and what do you do when, once you're out, you don't just jump right into starting a company. Do you go out and work a bit or, or what did, what do you do uh, before you get to, to deciding guild is what you want to do next? Yeah. So, you know, I had always, you know, I've been combination of sort of working on wall street and then um, being an entrepreneur, right. Guild is my, really my uh, third business. Um, so I can, I had some of that entrepreneurial experience. I had, a, I was running a mutual fund and asset manager I'd started um, and really kind of saw the, you know, the, the difficulty in scaling a business and scaling a consumer facing business at that time. Cause like the, the mutual fund sale typically goes, the mutual fund rep or company will go to the financial advisor, right? you you know, your stockbroker is what they used to call them. And then that person sort of guides their client into that. Um, so it's sort of this B2B to C sale. But I was really surprised about how badly most financial advisors were treating their retail clients still in 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, so I don't know, you know, I was like a little bit disheartened with my Navy service. I was really disheartened with the financial financial services investment arena. So I was definitely looking for kind of for something, something new, something refreshing. And um, then it really just kind of dawned on me, right, that I had all this kind of financial experience and sort of like my de facto um, one of my de facto collateral duties at the reserve unit was sort of the unit, right? Unit stock advisor. Mm. Right? And people found out I walked, worked, worked on Wall Street or managed a mutual fund. You know, they wanted to hear about stock picks and what did I think about the market and what did I think about this? I mean, I literally had a board I was going through for a qualification and kind of wrapped it up early. And then the CEO started asking me about a stock portfolio. Um, <laughs> You know, and at the same time, I had young guys and they're 22, 23 years old. You know, what should I do with my money? And sometimes here's some of the answers come back. You know, I'm going to I'm going to make an investment, sir, but I'm going to invest in my car. I'm like, mm. what do you mean? Like, I'm going to buy you know new rims for my car as an investment. I'm like, yeah, that's not really an investment. <laughs> or, you know, you see these it guys. appreciates. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be great. <laughs> um, right. Or you see these guys and girls come back from overseas. Right. They've been on a cruise. They've been mobilized. They got fifteen thousand dollars saved up and they cannot wait. Right. To get to that GMC dealer and buy that sixty thousand dollar truck. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. A, a huge APR. So kind of as the time I was getting out, it really dawned on me like one sort of retail financial services, retail um, financial advice is not not what it should be. And there's a huge unmet need in the military, and especially, you know, I'd seen it firsthand in the Navy, but didn't take much to figure out that it was a a uh, DOD wide problem. So that's really what's kind of spurred me on to doing this. So, you know, I got out, um, 2016 kind of kicked around some ideas, um, and really thought about a better way for people to invest. It was really kind of just the basics of, uh, Intel training that I've been thinking about for a while. And then in uh, late 2017, I'm like, all right, let's start making this happen. So founded the company in 2018. Um, 
And it was a combination of really using my resources I had for my time on Wall Street and working in finance to leveraging all the veteran resources that I could. So like a great example is we applied for and were admitted to the inaugural class of New York University's Veteran Future Lab, which is the only university-sponsored incubator for veteran and veteran spouse-founded companies. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, there's, it's interesting. There are some amazing programs cropping up for veteran uh, entrepreneurial founders that are, you know, want to start something. I've, obviously, uh, folks, listeners know I, I used to run Patriot Bootcamp, which is a great program affiliated with Techstars, but there's a lot of really cool programs cropping up. Um, so that's awesome. When you decided to create, to start this company, who did you think your customers were going to be and where did you go find them? That's, yeah, that's, you know, that's funny, kind of over and over again, right? Um, you know, went to kind of raise some money and talk to people about starting a company. Like I had been an investor, right? I had, you know, I'm used to investing in large cap value. It was like my specialty, kind of old state blue chip companies, Warren Buffett style investing. Mm-hmm. So venture capital and venture was sort of something new to me. Kind of reached out to some people and then kind of, you know, took any meeting I could with any venture capitalist. And really the thing I heard over and over again is, you know, you're talking about starting a direct-to-consumer company. And unless you get your marketing strategy figured out, unless you have a niche for marketing, unless you have um, you know a reason a reasonable path to a low customer acquisition cost, you're never going to get funded. And if you did, you'll blow through that money too fast because it's the consumer market's just so big. Right. So uh, I kind of took that message to heart, right, and really thought about you know focusing um, focusing on a specific group, and then it just was literally the light bulb moment, right? The group is sitting right in front of me. I spent you know, one weekend a month and two weeks a year with them at least, right? Yeah. And that the military was completely un- unserved for this stuff. So um, it was sort of that, that, you know, what I didn't come to that realization right away, but it was after a couple of meetings of talking about, you know, really finding a niche or group where the problem is really um, visible and easy to attack. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is the response from your demographic? Like, especially, you know, when you're talking to lower enlisted folks that, you know, um, their monthly income is low. And, but when they get back from deployment or when they get out of basic, they've got like a bunch of reserve cash. How do you find people that want to be able to invest in it and be smart with their finances? Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, two, it's a couple of things. One, that's just kind of a, there's a demographic shift going on, right? Millennial Gen Z. I mean, the military is, you know, what a mostly, Kind of whatever, wherever you want to put the line, millennial or Gen Z force, right? At an average yep. age of 27. So their peers are doing this stuff anyway. Um, but I mean, I literally had, you know, a kid working for me who was, you know, trained to drive a billion dollar submarine, but he just didn't really understand how a savings account work mm. would work, right? Like he couldn't, he, he couldn't wait to get his money out of the bank as soon as he got paid. And, you know, he would talk over and over again about like, I don't, I don't get it. I would have bank pain to hold on to my money. Right. So right. that was sort of the other, the other um, like thing that went off is not only is, you know, there's, is this sector been ignored by the personal wealth industry, but you know, the sort of basic financial education isn't there. I mean, it used to be taught in eighth grade or ninth grade, um, you know, middle school or high school it used to, you know, it used to be part of a home ec class, right? This is a check. Yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> they don't right? do that anymore. Nope. Yeah, they, no. Yeah. Guys don't do that again. As a matter of fact, like checking your savings account, like, what are you talking about? I just use Venmo. Right. right. Yeah. Like you say I use PayPal. That's antiquated. Now I just use Venmo. So, you know, the mechanics are much different. It's much easier to move money around, but I think sort of the basic fundamentals of understanding how, how it moves and what the impacts of it are, are, are um, missing from a lot of folks. So, 
that's really what what you know gave us the idea to move forward with sort of the other the other part of the platform, which is financial education, just basic financial education, right? This is investing versus savings. This is what compounding returns are, just just the absolute basics. Um, and we try to offer that in a pretty easy and approachable format. Yeah, and I think you know to your point too. What I've noticed, I've got a, an older kid now; he's in in college. I think you know if you have never had to balance a checkbook, the value of the dollar is different because you're not seeing it right. Mm-hmm. When I would, you and all of us on this podcast were kids, we got a check, a physical paycheck, right, and that we had to go to the bank and sign the back of the check to endorse it and put it. In the, now they could just like, to your point you know, just Venmo each other and the value of that dollar is not the same. They don't understand it as, as much as probably you were, you and I do. Right. Yeah. Right. When you got the physical check, this is your account number. This is a routing number, right? This is the check number. All, all those things like you kind of had to be aware of. I mean, you know, just by having to go through that process, you learned something about the financial system right now. It's like Venmo or just take a picture of the check and your bank will deposit for mm-hmm. you. So in removing a lot of the friction, which is great, I think we've removed kind of a lot of the basic uh, fundamental understandings about how the financial system works. No, totally. So when tell tell a little bit about what Guild Financial is. Like if, if you, you were going to do your elevator pitch, what, what, is, <laughs> what is Guild Financial? Well, that's good. You know, elevator pitch. And actually, here's a, a small alibi. You know, I'm a I'm an alum of the Patriot Boot Camp in it. Austin. I think it was February 2019. So. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great experience. Um, yeah. And certainly elevator pitch is one thing we worked on there. Yep. Right. So yep. really what we say is, um, you know, Guild is an investment platform and financial education platform that's focused on serving the military community. And so what does that mean? It means that we are a self-directed broker, just like an E-Trade or Schwab or Robinhood, where you, you log on, you open a brokerage account and you can buy and sell the stocks you want. And we combine that with a financial education platform where you can watch, you know, easy, short videos. A lot of the videos we've been able to share from the, actually the Office of Financial Readiness, which is a DOD office that not many even people know about. They actually have some really good content. But of course, like many things in the Pentagon, it's buried. <laughs> um, so we offer kind of just basic investment Um kind of short educational videos and we actually offer military money specific issues right so like what's your leave and earning statement how do you read that right who hasn't had their page act up right? so we put that i need to right. send this information yeah. to my oldest because he just got out of the army and now my youngest is about to get in to the air force but you know two completely different mindsets the oldest blows money like no you know tomorrow <laughs> and he's finally like oh my gosh i just got my va rating which means i'm gonna have a steady income apart from what i make I need to start paying off some debt, but he's got like so much everywhere. He didn't even, he doesn't even know where to start. Whereas my youngest has picked my dad's brain. My dad retired as a CFO. And so he learned how to do day trading and like, what's the difference between a Roth and and a traditional 401k. And I mean, he already knew this stuff at 16 years old. So it's very, it's very different for some of these like Gen Z kind of growing up where they're learning to be more digitally financially savvy, but they're still having to look at like, what's your options as you, as you grow older and what is your situation when it changes, when you get married, when you start to have kids, when you're looking into buying property and assets, what does that mean for your future? Mm -hmm. Um, So like all of the stuff, even just like the military portion of it, or if you're going to have a retirement pay or disability pay, how can you be smart with it instead of just spending everything that comes in your bank? Yeah. Right. And it it goes back to knowledge is power. And that's Mm -hmm. why we have that, that part of it. And one of the things we do, we're kind of banging our head against the wall, right? Like, 
how do you get a you know a 21 year old lance corporal right to watch a video on investing or to watch a video on diversified portfolios and so you know you got to make it approachable and you got to make the content um you know easy enough and not, not bore people to death but sort of the other the other idea we had is was really right from the book freakonomics um the authors there described the study of economics as the study of incentives so I said, well, why don't we just do what the military does? The military trains you to do everything, right? I mean, before you pick up a rifle, they'll make you take a class on even how to look at the rifle. Um, so <laughs> yeah. why don't we offer paid financial training? So that's one of the things we do, right? You go, there's an easy video, the first one, investing versus savings. It's a 58 second video from the Office of Financial Readiness. You watch that and you answer two easy questions. We'll put five bucks in your account. Wow. So that's nice. a program that's, yeah, that's getting some attention and we hope to expand on it. But right, you know, everyone understands training and pay me to train even better. I love it. What do you think you took from the military that you're now taking into Guild Financial that you've learned over the years? Well, that's a great question. Um, I mean, you know, just thinking about the overall community, obviously, right? You can't really serve this community if you're not part of the community, right? You know sure. that page your boot camp. You guys know that we're doing this podcast. So it's an advantage we have, but it's also it's also another layer of responsibility that we have, right? And especially when, you know, financial services is really all about trust, but now we're taking that to this community of our brothers and sisters in uniform. Like we can't screw this up. We have to get, get this right. So mm-hmm. it's another layer of sort of stress on top of that. But uh, I mean, that's how it should be, right? I mean, you know, no group deserves more than to participate in, you know, the, the American stock market and the American economy than those who have pledged their lives to defend it. So, I mean, it's a good mission for us. Um, and I think really to, to really sum it up, I would say that it's um, having a mission, right? Having a purpose other than just chasing a paycheck, mm-hmm. right? When you work on Wall Street, like, yeah, it was competitive and it was fun and, you know, and you were really judged by how much money you made and then how much money you took home. But, you know, having a purpose bigger than that, having a mission bigger than that, a personal mission bigger than that um, is really meaningful. I mean, this has been a grind to get Guild up and running and we're finally there, but um, you know, having this sort of what we call you know, corporate social mission has really made it all worthwhile, especially now as we launched in the last month here, we see people getting real value out of it. So that can kind of give you legs. Having a real mission, a mission you believe in can give you legs. Tell me a personal story that sticks out in your mind of, you know, either someone in the military that you've helped, someone since you started your business that makes you just get up in the morning and go that someone like that, like that story, helping this person out is makes it is what makes owning this business and running this business worthwhile. Yeah. So, um, you know, on the investment side on the platform side, right. I mean, obviously I wouldn't, wouldn't have launched an investment platform unless I thought I could launch a better one. Mm-hmm. So when I kind of hinted that the, the core of it is based on um, kind of basic Intel training, it's really based on crowdsourced wisdom, uh, you know, multi-source intelligence. And to do that, we, we actually arrange everyone in leaderboards. So everyone's anonymous. So like if they ever used a Peloton or done a, um, you know, done a CrossFit workout where everybody's like on a leaderboard, mm-hmm. we put everyone with the username on a leaderboard. So you can see over the last day or week or month, how people have performed. Um, and you, well, you can click into their portfolio and see what they own. So no dollar amounts, but just percentages, right? So you can see, okay, there's, this person had 20% of their money in Apple and 10% in Tesla, and they were up 10% for the month. Um, and that leaderboard functionality has gotten a lot of a lot of attention for us. People are starting to post it on social media. So we just kind of wrapped up our first full month, right, on New Year's Eve. And there was a, um, a veteran woman from the West Coast who had never bought a stock on her own before. And she was the number one investor over the, over the month of December. She was up almost 10% with the market down a little bit. Um, 
And I think uh, I might have even been down in my portfolio a little bit more than the market. So, you know, she was she was impressed with herself as she should be. And like when you looked at her portfolio, it was just like, you know, Costco, Home Depot, Pfizer, just blue chip stocks, you know, seven or eight of them, a good diversified portfolio. So for me, that was really motivating just to have this person say like, wow, I never even thought I could buy a stock. And now not only not like I never thought I could buy the stock. Now I'm the number one investor for the last month of a group of a couple hundred people. That's so that's, that's pretty rewarding. That's awesome. I love how you brought that gamification into it. You know, that's like going to speak to that younger generation. And really, it just motivates people to say, hey, how is this person doing? How am I doing? You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, gamification, right? We can get a bad rap. Certainly got a bad rap with Robin Hood. Deservedly so, right? This whole, like, every time you do a trade, there's confetti falling all over the place. <laughs> we try and do it and we try and gamify it to make it, you know, to push people to good behaviors, right? So like when you do your first trade on our platform, you get a little bit, you get a little ribbon, right? It looks like the national defense ribbon, right? Everybody can kind of identify with that. But when you actually create a diversified portfolio, meaning you own 10 stocks or more, we give you the diversified portfolio ribbon, which looks more or less like the army good conduct ribbon, right? And so this idea of like, we want to put ribbons on people's profiles for sort of good behaviors um, is, you know, sort of the good side of gamification. And then really the overall, the, the kind of core tenant of the platform that no one else has done. And it really came straight out of um, Nimitzi, came straight out of like day three of, of Navy Intel school is this idea of collective intelligence. We, everyone on the platforms is anonymous, right? We never share everyone's personal information, um, but we aggregate everyone's portfolios, kind of run them through some screens. And then we publish on a daily basis, the 30 most popular or 30 most frequently appearing stocks in the guild portfolio. So it's like a guild index of mm-hmm. the stocks that this community owns in real time. Um, so you can go on there and see like, Hey, I have Apple, right? Um, yesterday, Apple was 10% of the portfolio today. It's 14% of the portfolio, right? right? So you can feel good about it. So it's like, it's was sort of the takeaway, um, that I got from the GameStop Robinhood stuff that was going on. Right. And that story was really more about Reddit than it was about GameStop. I thought, because you had all these people on Reddit talking about these trades and who's got the diamond hands and who's got the paper hands. Well, now you don't have to, right. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Right. The idea about trust, you can go on to the R platform. You want to guild, you can look at the leaderboard, see what people have, but you can, more importantly, you can see a snapshot of the whole community in real time. Right. And see what's going on. Um, so it's almost analogous to like a Yelp or TripAdvisor, right? If you've you know ever picked a restaurant on Yelp, you look at the individual reviews. That's kind of like the leaderboard, but then you've got the star rating at the top. That's the crowdsourced wisdom. That's the aggregate. That's the collective intelligence of all those reviews. Yeah. And so that's what our crowdsourced portfolio does. And the genesis of it actually you know comes from a case study that's taught in Navy Intel School about the USS Scorpion, which was a fast attack sub that was lost in 1968. And um, a form of collective intelligence was used to eventually locate it the following March. Wow. You know, being an entrepreneur is, is hard. It's really hard. And as a founder, you screw up things all the time. What do you think is the thing that along the way you've screwed up that could have scuttled everything you worked for? Oh, man. You know, it's it's every day's a minefield, right? Look, I'll say this, and having had a couple of businesses, the number one thing that can screw things up out of the gate is having a bad partner. Right. And having a bad partner where you've given too much equity or you guys are equal partners, the equal partner thing hardly ever works out. Um, you know, having someone that you don't know that well come in, you know, even people you do know well that come in and they, you know, they want a big piece of equity. Um, but it's sort of like, you know, it's my sweat equity, but I'll earn it kind of thing. Bad partnerships can derail a company even before they started. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my advice there would be, you know, take it slow with people take it slow with new partners. Um, you know, if you're going to offer out equity, offer out small amounts, smaller than you think you should. Um, and, you know, you can always give people more, 
right? So you know, it's, a, it's a really, you have to protect yourself in that way because I've seen, I've had businesses that have gone down because of bad partnerships, businesses that should have been great, thriving, you know, economically successful businesses, but just because there were differences of thought or opinion in million two partners, you know, it's not going to work. Yeah, the Small Business Association or Small Business Administration, they have a great stat that I, I send founders to all the time, which is 80% of businesses fail and they don't fail because you had a bad product or it, the business was bad or the customers weren't there. It, they fail because of people, poor execution. And, mm-hmm. and, and so people are really at the heart of it. So to your point, like finding folks at the earliest stages that can help move the needle is so important. And, uh, and yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And on the veteran thing too, it's kind of like a, a double-edged sword, right? Yeah. I mean, like Patriot Boot Camp's a great program. NYU's program is a great pro- program. Um, you know, Bunker Lab's a great program. Yeah. There are other programs out there though that, you know, or as they would say, all hat and no cattle, right? And even people that say, <laughs> oh, you're a veteran. I want to help. I want to help. Yeah. Right. And they want to help until you send them the third email. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to help anymore. So there's a lot of people that like to offer and talk about offering veterans in the military help, but yeah. you know, when the rubber meets the road, it can certainly be less than that. So look, if you're a veteran listening to this and you're a veteran entrepreneur, be discerning, right? You've, you've put in your time and your effort and you've got a lot to learn probably on the entrepreneur and the business side, but don't ever question who you are and you know kind of what your principles are. And if you, you don't get a good feeling from someone or organization, like that's sign number one that you probably should, should take a step back. Such great advice. Yeah. So yeah, important. Awesome. Where do you see Guild being in the next five to 10 years? So it's, you know, we started off as a, you know, an investment brokerage platform offering financial education and, you know, this, this collective intelligence based investing platform. And that's really about trust, right? The financial education saying, we'll pay you to take our financial education, right? That's a a trust thing, right? We want to do the right thing by our investors because we're not going to make money off of a $10, $20, $100 account, right? We just can't, but we cannot lose money on it, which is sort of, sort of why, you know, it makes sense now to go after the, this market for personal wealth. Um, but we want to certainly expand. Um, and when we sort of talked about, you know, trust is our number one commodity. I mean, we'd like to be, you know, in 10 years, we'd like Guild to be the number one um, trusted financial services company in the world, right? Just to put it out there. I mean, we're going to, we're starting with this self-directed brokerage, but, you know, Wall Street certainly has a hard time with trust. Um, a lot of financial institutions certainly have a hard time with trust. So we think it's a commodity that's missing from that that sector and that industry. And we think, you know, one, we've got the right DNA and the right team um, and the right approach to to make that happen and, and to become that and fill that gap of a really trusted financial services company. It's awesome. I love it. Where can people find you guys online? So um, our website is guild.financial, just G-U-I-L-D dot financial, no dot com dot financial is the whole domain. So you go there, you can, um, there's a couple links at the top there to download the app from the app store or Google play. Or if you just go on like the app store and just type in guild financial, it comes right up. You can download the app. And again, if you're going to download the app, um, and get on it, it's just, just realize it is a brokerage account. So we have to ask things like your address and your social security number. Right. Um, we make it pretty clear that we're asking for it by regulation, not because we want to, and that's all handled in a secure manner. Um, and then we're also on um, Instagram at guild underscore financial. And then my Instagram account is uh, Sean Bonner, S-E-A-N-B-O-N-N-E-R-U-S-A, all one word on Instagram. And then we've got uh, our other sort of chief content officer, Kaj Larson. His his Instagram account is much more entertaining than mine is. I promise you that. <laughs> um, you know, he's, a, he's a typical Navy SEAL. He's He's spearfishing and shooting machine guns and hanging out with beautiful people. So Kaj is K-A-J. 
L-A-R-S-E-N at Kaj Larson on Instagram. I love it. Hey, Sean, thank you so much for being on the program. Uh, really appreciate your story. All the best to you and, and your team. Uh, it's an amazing platform, and, and we're so excited to, to have you tell your story here. Yeah, I know. It's great. Look, thanks for having me. Um, thanks for you guys for what you're doing to help get the word out. I mean, I was a little bit fortunate. I had some business experience when I you know went into the Navy yeah. and come out of the Navy. And um, you know, one of the things I've been, I've really enjoyed, I've always enjoyed um, coaching. And that's one of the things I really liked about being an officer in the Navy was like, for me, it was more of a coaching role. Um, and so the ability to talk to people and help people with, you know, especially entrepreneurs from the veteran side, uh, I think it's great. And I think anyone that does it deserves a, a Bravo Zulu. So here's to you guys. Thanks a lot. Appreciate Thanks you. for coming on board and being able to provide your, your wisdom and, you know, your guidance to our listeners. It's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hope, hopefully, um, we'll hear from everybody and see everyone on the leaderboard yeah. in the days yeah. to come. Love it. All right. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Tune in every week uh, on the StartupRadioNetwork.com. Listen, learn, get shit done. We'll see you later. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.